I'm Bill Wilson, and along with my friend Jim Gibson, I started a little punk label called Blackout Records in 1989. Over the years, we've released records from H2O, Killing Time, Sheer Terror, Kill Your Idols, Dead Guy, The New Bomb Turks, and many more. The Mad at the World podcast is a collection of conversations with our bands and extended family who have great stories to tell about their records, their art, the road, and growing up against the grain. Today on Mad at the World, we are talking to the four founding members of Uppercut. We all met on the Bronx campus of Fordham University, and way before they became a band and I started the label, we were just a crew of teenagers taking the D train downtown every weekend to avoid the preppy nightmare going on on the Fordham campus. Hey, this is Bill from Blackout, and you're listening to the Mad at the World podcast. Today's guests are the guys from Uppercut, Steve Murphy, the singer. How you doing, Bill? Lars Weiss, guitar player and songwriter. Hey, what's up, Bill? Pat Trainer, bass player extraordinaire. Hey, Bill, how you doing? And, uh, and Mr. Rob Sefcheck on the skins. Hi, Bill, and everyone in the hardcore world. So we're going to dive right in and kind of just talk a little bit about, you know, how you guys found hardcore, um, a little bit of how the band got together, a little band history, and you know some cool anecdotes about the road. Um, so, you know, growing up musically, you know, I know that you know both Pat and Steve didn't grow up with rock. You guys grew up sort of listening to hip hop, and that's a really interesting musical journey for people to have, because I think traditionally, especially for myself, for the Killing Time guys, probably for Rob and, and for Lars, we probably came into hardcore through the rock side. So Pat, talk about growing up in Queens and kind of being exposed to hip hop and, and what led you to hardcore. Yeah, sure, Bill. I mean, I, I grew up and went to public school in New York City, you know, all growing up uh, in Queens, which was pretty much or, you know, one could argue the birthplace of hip hop. Uh, certainly I didn't live in, in South Jamaica, but, but growing up, uh, and, and going to public school, that's pretty much all we, uh, all I ever heard. I never heard a Led Zeppelin song until I went to, uh, I went to college or, or I never heard any, any hard rock until I went to, uh, went away to, went away to school. It was all hip hop growing up. Um, yeah, I think for me, it was a little different because I grew up in, uh, Rochester, New York. Um, and I, you know, there was something about the, the, uh, message of hip hop that just really, really appealed to me back in the, in the early days, you know, um, with, uh, Grandmaster Flash and, and all that stuff. Um, and I, I just dug really deep into it, even though it was not really, um, available to me. I certainly wasn't going to any shows or anything like that, but, um. I was buying those twelve inch those twelve inches at the at the record store downtown, and um, for the the message of of that early hip hop was you know a, kind of like a gateway into hardcore, and that that's kind of how I got there. So was it the social justice message really that kind of got there, and you saw kind of a comparative message in, in hardcore? It was, yeah, and and it was the 
absolutely that was that was a, a big driver of it and also just the idea of um something that was sort of you know countercultural um and, and not mainstream seems to always have had uh, an appeal to me so was there a person and this is for both Steve and Pat was there a person that kind of you know handed you a hardcore record and said hey listen to this? Like, was it their specific person or people, or was it a guy from a record store? Like how did, or, you know, how did that work? So for me, um, for me, uh, when I was a freshman at Fordham, um, there's a kid down the hall who walked, walked by and he heard me listening to the Friday night, um, hip hop show. And he gave me a tape and on the tape was, um, the Sex Pistols, which I didn't really dig that much at that time, and but it also had Minor Threat and Black Flag on it, and you know my mind was just blown when I heard the, that Minor Threat record. And Pat, how did you eventually make your way to to hardcore? I, I made it through kind of the skating scene. I started skating probably when I was in high school, and used to go down to Washington Square Park pretty regularly. And there was a skate shop on Spring Street right off the park called Dream Wheels. Um, and we used to see flyers for shows, and I started going to shows at at Dan Sateria, and that's how I uh, kind of got got into the scene through uh, through the skate scene. Oh, that's cool. And then you know, Lars and, and Rob, you guys were you know kind of came up in the same way that I did with like listening to rock as a kid. Um, so Lars, you know, you kind of went to the same record stores that Carl and I did in Yonkers because you you know, lived basically around the corner. You were a couple of years younger, I guess, you know, than me and Carl at the time, but you went to Mad Platters and, and you worked at this, the Mad Platters record store for a little while as well. So that probably helped expand your horizons. Yeah. I think it was mainly like, I don't really, I remember hearing like, I guess I remember hearing punk rock. I remember on, I mean, LIR definitely played which is like, you know, it, which is, a, you know, a great new wave station in New York, but also played, like I remember hearing the Sex Pistols on that. And I remember also hearing it, it used to be um, WPIX had a radio station that was a rock station when I was little. I remember hearing that and hearing The Clash on the on LIR. And then through that, ended up going to Mad Platters and then talking to Tony Pradlick, the guy who worked there. And that's how, you know, I found out about hardcore and found out about Agnostic Front. Things like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean Tony. I mean you know Tony was that he was that guy in our in our neighborhood really who who helped and I think on every episode where there's anybody from Westchester, whether it be Breakdown or Ordeal or now you know you know you from Uppercut, we all you know that was the nucleus of our kind of suburban scene was the record stores, whether it be Mad Platters at first. Or the, or or when Tony went up to work for Sue at the record stop in in Hartsdale, we were mm-hmm. all kind of you know he was very influential on our our you know shaping our our musical tastes and you know I can't decide whether I should thank him or curse him for <laughs> for leading me down the path. Um, yeah. But honestly, you know, I I really thank him for for being you know a part of it um, as well. So Rob, you know, obviously, you know, you're Queens also. And how did you like roll up into uh roll up into hardcore? Um kind of interesting, I think I hope. <laughs> but like 
when I was a kid, I'm, I'm older than all these guys. So like when I was a kid, my musical experiences were all stadium rock shows. Like, and I don't, I don't mean that in a bad way, but I, you know, I, I saw Queen with Freddie Mercury, ACDC with Bon Scott, like, you know, um, some, some amazing stadium rock shows. But at, as I got older, a little bit older, like, you know, I, I got, I think, I think I just got a little bit tired of like always, um, being like kind of in the cheap seats of like Nassau Coliseum or Madison Square Garden. And I mean, granted, I was only like around 12, 13 years old at the time, like in the mid seventies. So like, you know, I, I had, it was, I would have to have older friends or, or my brothers taking me to these shows. And then at a certain point, I think, I, th I think the sort of pompousness of a lot of that, like sort of 70s bloated rock like thing kind of just started wearing on me and like my I, my oldest brother started bringing home a few like you know he brought home like a Ramones record he brought home a Devo record and I was just like whoa wait a second this is this is not Kiss you know this is like some weird fucking left field shit and like of course I I, I became more interested in it and um you know bands like that you know records like that Ramones Devo Clash um, and, and then, and then from there, it was like kind of a natural progression to, to like, you start seeing out stuff that's even more, um, even more intense, you know, more, more punk rock, more hardcore. And then when I got to Fordham, you know, I was probably still like, you know, listening to a lot of rock and some metal, but like, once I met Bill, once I met you and Carl, you got, you know, we started going to matinees, et cetera. And that, and, and, and there was something also about, you know, the, this sort of immediacy of going to like a, a small show where you're like, oh my God, like you don't have to, you don't have to have a record contract to like play a show. You know what I mean? When you grew up in the seventies, it was always like, you had to be signed to this big giant label, but like punk rock was just like any, you know, anybody, your friends could get up and play. You could get up and play. Like it might not be that great for a while, but like, it was just a completely different vibe from what I grew up with. And it was really appealing in that, in that sense. I, I, I don't know if that, if you guys yeah. can relate to any I mean, of that. Yeah. That entrepreneurial aspect of hardcore really appealed to me because it was like kids were doing silk, silk screening t-shirts. The kids were the record label. There was really very different, uh, no, you know, if, you know, a person would be in the crowd dancing for one band and then, you know, you know, 20 minutes later, it'd be on stage singing. So, I like that kind of even playing field. And as you said, less pomposity and less rock stardom and really that sense of creativity instead of kind of the crass consumerism that kind of cock rock was. And that was really appealing to me. I think that, you know, the DIY element of, of hardcore is probably the thing that resonated with, with, with me um, almost the most out of all the experiences that I had. What was your first show, Rob? Like like first rock show hardcore. ever, hardcore, hardcore. That first one, you know what, man? It it may have been like a band like Damage. Damage. What or, Damage or, at CBGBs? I think so, man. For some reason, that really that really sticks in my mind. Like seeing them because it was so like blistering. Yeah, and that record is unavailable too. And Yachty Ho is such a great song. Like they really had that sound down. Like, oh wait a second. Like, I also I have to throw in um, I think I think it may have also been Reagan Youth at the Subway in Queens. 
Oh, wow. That, that, that was one of the early ones as well. I, I remember that was a weird little, little club that was only around for a short amount of time, but they had some really cool bands roll through that place. Reagan Youth was great. Yeah, I saw them too. Yeah, I mean, and so what year was that? Right, you think like eighty five ish, eighty four? Probably, yeah. I'm, I was definitely not a first wave hardcore guy, like like um, uh, like a lot, like a lot of people I know, like Anthony from Killing Time and all. Um, so, Murph, what about your show? Like, how did you go from from you know, was it a Fordham thing and going to a CB's show, or like, how did you find? How did you ever, you know, did somebody shepherd you down to a show once and you kind of just got caught up in the energy? Because you were a freaking rugby player. So I assumed you immediately got caught up in the energy of the whole thing. I, I, I enjoyed it for sure. Um, I, I think uh, I think the first show I went to was Black Flag in, at Maxwell's in Hoboken. Wow. And then they had like 85-ish? Yeah, I think it was around 85. Bars? Um, real Harker show was... Uh, AF at CB's and I was still, it was like one of those things I went to it and I couldn't get in cause I was 15, but I wanted to see AF. So I watched them from outside the AF and underdog and Warzone. Oh, okay. And then Pat, how did you make it down? I, my first shows were like naked Ray gun at Danceteria and seeing the cramps at the Ritz. But wow, Bill, you, you raise a good point. Like, Going to the matinees was kind of a very intimidating thing uh, at first. And I think I did go down there with, uh, oh God, I want to say with like Sammy Crespo or you guys. That was not like, that was a very intimidating prospect at first. Oh, so you might've come with us to our first CB show because I remember going to see Agnostic Front and I think the Crumb Suckers or maybe AOD or something like that. Or it was the Crumb Suckers and AOD probably sometime in, you know, 86 ish. Um, and I remember just being completely intimidated because, you know, I'm there wearing my, you know, ridiculous homemade suicidal tendency shirt, like any <laughs> suburban hardcore kid would. And I'm getting these fucking stare downs from all these, like, you know, Billy psycho and all of these, like, you know, dudes that were, you know, to me as, you know, an, an 18 year old, you know, college freshmen, these were all like giant freaking adults. And then, you know, big Charlie at the door who mm -hmm. is, you know, he, he's like, makes Lawrence Taylor look like Billy Barty, you know, mm -hmm. as far as like size wise, he was freaking humongous. And then I just remember Troy, um, you know, coming down, you know, bald head, safety pins literally all over his thing. And he was carrying the thigh bone of like a side of beef. Like he was carrying just like this basically cudgel made out of like this thigh bone. He must've just got it on the West side or something like that. But like, and I was just thinking to myself, like I was completely intrigued and I was like, what the fuck is going on here? And it was great and it was exhilarating, but it was also very fucking intimidating. You know, it, it, it was Bill. And you really forget, I mean, you go to New York city now and it's so gentrified back then. I mean, the lower East side, particularly where Seabees was on the lower end of the Bowery was a rough, was a rough, rough little spot back then. Oh yeah. I mean, definitely there were times of, you know, violence. I remember, you know, like the guys, you know, in the hotel over Seabees throwing, you know, beer bottles full of piss down at people. And then Charlie handing out pool cues mm -hmm. for us to like fight them. 
like that was like one matinee show, the early matinee show that I remember. And then all of a sudden hearing the cops come and then like a hundred hardcore kids running the wrong way down bleaker over cars and into the subways and scattering like fucking cockroaches when you turn the light on. <laughs> like, and that kind of shit definitely doesn't happen anymore, you know, because of surveillance, because of the way the neighborhood is gentrified and just because it's a definitely, it's definitely a different time now. I'll tell you that much. But um, yeah. So, you know, did all of you play instruments prior to kind of, form you know to to putting the band together did all of you play or was it just kind of like you just kind of bought instruments to participate in hardcore i, like, I think it was i i think it was the latter i think we all sort of had well i don't, I don't know I, I i had a little bit of experience with playing but by no means was i like a musician at that point and um i don't, I don't know if these guys feel the same way yeah, same thing. I played for a little bit. I think uh, Carl and I shared a guitar teacher when I was really young. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but I by no means was like a musician or ever was one. And then, I, I think I, it was more we were just making a pact to like be sort of a a, a, a semi quasi gang or something. <laughs> <laughs> Pat, when did you pick up the bass? I, I picked up the bass. Um, I used to kind of <laughs> – Rob had a drum set in his dorm and a little thing, and I we'd, we'd go to his dorm room and play uh, the first Murphy's Law album, and we'd just make a lot of noise. I don't know if you remember that, Rob. I do remember. Uh, <laughs> there were no, no cymbals, just drums. <laughs> right, right. And, and we would just blast that shit and, like, and just literally bounce off the walls. And then, and then when the SOD record came out, that – that that pissed a lot of people off too. Yeah, yeah, but I don't. I could never play. Lars was always very patient with me. Lars would just like, "All right, Pat, put your finger on this fret, then that fret," and that's how I learned. So I, I was always very grateful for Lars' patience. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, somebody had to be the you know the musician, and then so all of you guys were kind of barely playing. Steve, did you have any idea that you were ever going to be a vocalist for a band? Definitely not. Zero. Zero. I don't even know how, I still don't know how it happened. You still don't believe that you're a singer? Is that really what, what's going on? I mean, that's definitely true. But I think um, I, I, to me, it was almost like a, like a sport, you know? I mean, just being on stage and just having that amount of violence going on, it was, it was just like playing rugby. Yeah. I mean, the look on your face always doing shows was this look of complete reckless abandon. So yeah, like you were having fun, like tossing people around. It was kind of like an adrenaline rush for you, you know, at that time. And I don't think you really were like thinking about your vocal intonation as much as you were kind of just looking to scream and friggin' rip it up. Absolutely. So uppercut, getting together, right? Everybody's kind of like focused around Fordham or people at Fordham, right? And... You know, I guess Carl was probably the, 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 the catalyst for a lot of this. Yeah, definitely. Blame it all on Carl, man. He's uh, – no, all kidding aside, no, he – yeah. I mean, I met Lars through Carl. I, I, I always – Carl remembers too the day we met was, you know, the day that – it was the day that we were both, like, I think waiting online to buy rain and blood. <laughs> and we uh, – I think I met you that – I'm. 
I think I met you that same day too, Bill. Anyway, um, yeah, and Carl was like, oh, you, you have a drum set, you know? Oh, really? Like, and then he introduced me to Lars and he was like, well, why don't you guys like, you know, you know, don't, don't just keep coming to see us. I think he was like, yeah, why don't, why don't you guys try to do something? We were like, oh shit. All right. And, um, <laughs> yeah. And then you, and then you kind of got together probably at Lars's, Lars's house to kind of practice a little bit. And then you had to pick a vocalist. And so, you know, you went through a couple of different choices, right? I think Sam Crespo was your initial vocalist, but it wasn't kind of set in stone. And then he kind of faded. And then you all knew this guy from around campus, right? This intense person. So I know that, you know, there was a, there was a nickname for Steve that I don't think he really knew. Um, but you guys decided, you know, that you were going to invite him to try out. So Pat, you know, pull, pull that thread a little bit. I, I sure will. I used to see it. And guys, it, it, Fordham was a pretty small community. And I think there was, there was a bunch of us who were kind of either in the skate and the music and you kind of, we kind of could had like a secret nod or something or a secret handshake to identify each other. But I used to see Steve, um, a lot around town with, uh, with, a, with a girl he was dating back then. And uh, my name for Steve was uh, Mr. Hate. I was always very intimidated by him. <laughs> and then, so who, who was the person who actually approached Steve about trying out? And what did you, th- and Murph, what did you think when they asked you? Steve, I think I asked you. And I think you just, I think you just laughed in my face. I, I definitely think, I definitely remember Rob asking me. Um, and, but he, he was very like, you know, you can try out. And I was like, okay, I, I'll try out. I, I <laughs> you I can know what try out. <laughs> Cause I think there was a guy named Walter who was kind of in the mix too at that time. And there was like a little competition going on. Um, so when I went down there the first time into, um, Lars's basement, I, I definitely didn't think I had the job. I, I was just going to kind of try out. I remember being actually quite nervous about it. And then lo and behold, you became uh, the singer of, uh, the singer of uppercut. So, <laughs> So you guys wrote a bunch of songs, right? Probably in that practice space up at, up at Lars's in Westchester. And then, you know, you kind of followed the same kind of killing time template. I think you recorded, you recorded a demo first, right? And then Where the Wild Things Are followed soon thereafter. And the timeline is pretty great for me. Do you guys remember kind of the whole timeline? Like, you know, where you recorded, how you recorded, all that kind of stuff. The demo we recorded at in Yonkers, right? Yeah, we recorded um, that at, at the loft. At the, at the loft, and yeah. the guy was uh, the guy was like a total deadhead, and like, <laughs> and he was just like, you could tell he was like, I why did I even let these fucking guys use? This? <laughs> but but he was patient, and I and the the sounds were good. The songs I don't think were really that strong, but um. You know, as we were saying before, we were learning as we went, you know. I think that demo marks my only appearance of ever writing lyrics for a song. That's true. Be. No. Yep. You you wrote you definitely wrote the lyrics to uh I can't remember uh I can't remember what song it was now, but uh, I remember you, I remember you handed me a piece of paper with all the lyrics written down. You're like, I just need you to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I had no That's place funny. doing that either. There was no authority that I carried. I was just like, I wrote this. Do you want to use it or something like that? Like it was just like it was just you know, eighteen year old catharsis. Well, well, that that goes to the access of the hardcore scene. You, you didn't you didn't need any right. You just did it. Yeah, that was part of the magic of that. So, 
On the heels of doing that demo, I guess I was in the process of putting together where the wild things are because I started putting that together, I guess, junior year at Fordham, maybe senior year at Fordham. Probably the song that everybody knows is the song that's on the compilation. Um, Am I clear? And I know that, you know, from the way you guys looked and from the way you guys kind of sounded, people probably thought that you were a straight edge band. And while, you know, you know, Pat was pretty, you know, straight edge, if not straight edge, you know, Steve definitely wasn't. And I think you guys kind of exemplified kind of, you know, a, a blend. And that song was definitely not a straight edge song. So Steve, can you kind of talk about what those lyrics are about and kind of debunk some of the mythology around that? Yeah, I, I don't really view that song as being about straight edge. Um, I, to me, that song was more a reflection on what was going on in the scene um, at that time. Because, you know, when I got into when I got into the New York hardcore scene, it was about all these kids who were who were different. They felt a little you know, outside of, outside of their societies. And a lot of these kids were from high school or, you know, they were younger than me, a little bit younger anyway. Um, and it's, it just dawned on me one day at the matinee that for all of this talk about this group of people that was kind of unifying together because they were all freaks. And I took a look around and you had the straight edge kids who basically looked like jocks, right? They were wearing uh, varsity jackets and, Air Jordans. And then you had the, the metalhead kids who were, you know, dressed like, well, they always dress the same, right? They still dress the same with the black t-shirts. And then, and then you had the other various groups and everybody had their uniform. And, you know, this is probably, I don't know, 88 maybe. Um, and it was just kind of a, um, just a very, I just had like a, a kind of a moment. That song was like a, a flash, a flash of lightning. Really, it came together in one practice. Um, both the, I think both the music and the and the words came together in one practice. And so it was more of a, a you know, it was just more of a, a statement of, you know, we, we were here because we were all, you know, different from the typical society norms, and and yet when you looked around, people were just starting to kind of fall back into their usual, usual roles. Um, you know, and I, I didn't like that. So I, I picked, I picked straight edge because at that time, the straight edge guys I felt were, were really kind of trying to differentiate themselves, um, from, from everybody else at CBGB's. And I, you know, I never really thought about this much until I read an interview with, um, with Jules from, uh, side by side where, and I didn't, I never knew that the reason that Jules started alone in a crowd with um, Rob and Lars and Carl was that because he, he also had very similar feeling. Um, maybe not, maybe not as, as direct as, as, uh, as my feeling was, but you know, I think, so I think um, it just struck a note with me and that's where the lyrics just came out. Are there any other songs that kind of have that special meaning? Because I mean, for me, I know, especially as you got into doing different stuff like doing Mind's Eye, there seemed to be a spiritual element. And I don't want to say like religious element, but there seemed to be a little tiny dash of a spiritual element coming into some of your songs. Um, you know, Uppercut was never, you know, Rob, Rob, I think, touched on this in one of our conversations. Um, but Uppercut was never, we weren't really part, we were very different than the normal you know, bands in that scene at that time. Like even the, even the music was always kind of lending itself to something else. Um, 
you know, in the, the later, the later songs, some of which were never recorded, um, we're already heading in like a post hardcore direction. And there was just a, always some melody in, in the music, which, you know, was, you know, there wasn't a lot of melody in hardcore back in, in those days. Right. So, um, yeah. I just think it was, uh, I think when you bring, start bringing melody into music, you know, you start, you start end up having more emotion in, in, in the, in the vocals it just happens naturally. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty interesting because yeah, you guys didn't have traditional like mosh parts. And I mean, you did have some, but you know, aside from, you know, where the wild things are stuff where it was a little bit more of a traditional song, when you listen to the EP, when you get to the songs on the EP, there's a lot of multiple layers and it probably has to do with the musical influences probably circa 89, right? It comes from the fact that you guys weren't just listening to, you know, mosh it up hardcore. You know, at that point in New York City, there was a lot of different things starting to crop up, right? You know, it was the rise of amphetamine reptile. It was the rise of, you know, probably, um, you know, the first wave of sub pop pre Nirvana. And it was before kind of the, you know, real freak rock explosion of Faith No More and Jane's Addiction. But in New York, there was a lot of these departures happening. Yeah. I mean, even take a band like Prong, you know, Prong, prong for, oh, for as hard as they man. were, they, prong, prong had, a, had a ton of really cool shit going on in, in, those, in those early albums. And then you, you started yeah. to get like bands like Helmet coming through and um, just changed for me anyway. Yeah. I mean, and that's also why, you know, on my side, I signed bands like Crawl Pappy because they were kind of like what I considered to be like hardcore phase two, which is like dudes that were a little bit older, right? They knew how to play their instruments a little bit. Their songwriting was intense, but their lyrics were still, you know, emotionally driven, you know, personally introspective lyrics, but heavy as fuck. But you talk lyrically, I think from the EP, The Machine Breaks Down, which, I, guys, did Drago write that? Does that sound right? Eric. Eric did. Fink wrote Fink it. Did. Fink, oh, okay. I thought it was. Eric wrote like every part of that, yeah. Okay, but that was a very, lyrically, that was a very haunting song. Oh, I was just going to say that when I think about the EP, a lot of it, and having listened to it later on, a lot of that is Eric, who's, you know, his playing and his influence on it. Like there's a lot of stuff that he did that was, you know, for a hardcore band, a little bit out of the box. And that's the thing that when I listen to it now, later on, that I really appreciate that maybe even then I might've thought was a little too out there, but like Eric, like, you know, he's a really good guitar player and that made some of the stuff like way different. And, you know, I've always like really grown to appreciate his influence on that. Eric was like doing stuff that he couldn't do in side by side or in a regular hardcore band by the time he was playing with us. He is like definitely like a huge thing of the, what makes that record sound different and made the band sound different as, as him. It was just my playing. There's no way it would sound that way. <laughs> well, I mean, was he the Greg Ginn of Uppercut in some ways? There's a lot of notes though. There's a lot of notes. He's not stopping playing. He was probably more advanced, like way more advanced than we were as, as players. Yeah. Yeah. He had that badass BC Rich too. Definitely. Oh definitely. yeah, he did. Yeah. He, he also probably wouldn't have been able to play a lot of that stuff in any other New York hardcore bands at that time. No, 
that's what I'm saying. It's like, there's no way that that was going to happen in, in a regular youth crew, like hardcore band that he was in the ones he was in. He was in side by side and gorilla biscuits before he was with us. Yeah. I, so, I don't, I, I think we were kind of like, we, we were always pretty open to, you know, to, to different stuff. And, and, um, and it was almost like anything goes, you know, <laughs> like maybe to our detriment yeah. at times, maybe, maybe we should have been a little more discriminating, but we, uh, we threw it all in the definitely, pot. <laughs> definitely tried. Yeah. 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 It's a weird record. I like, I like the EP. It's definitely doesn't sound like any other hardcore record from that time. It's weird. And I like it. And most of it, what I really like the most out of it is Eric's playing is like, is insane. It's really good. Yeah. How did you, how did you guys hook up with him? Because, you know, we were talking about him on the EP, but we didn't really kind of talk about his his joining of the band. So when did that happen and how did you connect with him? But the whole thing happened is that I got like, I don't know how I met Sammy, but I met Sammy, I think, through my brother, who's like my younger brother, is Sammy's age. And like he knew a friend of his and I met those guys or I might have met him through. I don't know who it was. And then I ended up they needed. I, through Sammy, I met Jules and they were like, oh, we need a bass player. Billy's leaving the band. And I was like, oh, I'll do it. And so I ended up playing with Side by Side on the side for a little bit. I played one show with them and then they broke up. And then Eric, I became friends with Eric because Eric's the guy that taught me all the Side by Side songs. I would hang out with them. And then after that, I was just like, uh, I'm doing this other band. Do you want to come up to my mom? I think he just showed up at my mom's house and we just did it. And he ended up playing and that was it. He was like in the band right after that. It was not very planned or anything, but I think that was pretty much it. Like I enjoyed hanging out with Eric and I also knew Eric, Eric was friends with my friend, Hugh. I don't know if I know Hugh through Eric. It's all weird. And anyway, and so I was just like, Oh, we ended up hanging out all the time. And then he ended up coming up to my house and then he practiced with us once. And then he started playing in the band. And that's how, so here's a side-by-side connection. Yeah. It always happens by osmosis, it appears, in most hardcore bands. It's just kind of like, hey, this guy's around, and he's good, and he played, and this is cool. Yeah. And look, you know. And, but he also had yep. he also had some uh, some notoriety. I remember him, he, wasn't he on the cover of, like, a Revelation, like a Revelation comp or yeah, something? Yeah, he's on the cover, the, yeah, the inside cover for the, where it, uh, the booklet. Right. For the way it is. Like he's the picture. It's, he's playing bass. That's when he played bass in Gorilla Biscuits. Right. And that's a piece. He played bass in Gorilla Biscuits before Arthur did. So, um, cause he grew up with Lukey, like him and Lukey know each other from their little kids. They both grew up in the same part. Of, they grew up in downtown Brooklyn. And so he was in Gorilla Biscuits from the almost, not the very beginning, but very close once Lukey was playing with them. And then, um, anyway, that, that's that, what that picture is from is when he played bass for Gorilla Biscuits. And um, I think the side by side show I played it was 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 with Gorilla Biscuits, and I think he played both. And that was the last Gorilla Biscuits show he played. I think that was around eighty seven or something like that. I don't really remember. It's sort of weird. You have to ask him. That's like part two. We can find track down Eric Fink. That's right. So EP comes out. You know, you guys were playing shows all along. Um, a lot of times. Because eventually Carl became roommates with Steve um, on and off, you know, in this dilapidated apartment um, off adjacent to the Fordham campus that we used to call the Hotel Camberling. Um, you know, 
it was this, you know, it was, it was, the, you know, and everybody would call it the hotel and we knew exactly what it was. And, you know, that was the place where we had kind of, you know, our post-college now parties and, you know, it was kind of the centerpiece for, you know, a lot of, you know, probably that, you know, late eighties, early nineties shenanigans. Cause Steve had graduated and Rob had graduated a couple of years before us. So I think Carl was probably moved in when his parents moved to Florida that was the place where many, many a road trip was launched from, um, you know, and I think all of us had probably some of the best times and some of the most memorable times, you know, not playing the particular shows, but just doing the things that we did. And one of the things that stands out in my memory is like the friggin' completely insane way that we all used to travel, you know, by, you know, you know, Kaminali renting a panel truck with all of us cramming into the back with like throwing a couch back there and all the amps completely untethered, yep. you know, yeah. just like everybody just sitting in this open, you know, living room in the back, unventilated. I remember coming back from Boston once feeling really high because apparently the exhaust was co- going into the, into the cabin and we all <laughs> could have died of asphyxia. <laughs> You know, I remember once coming back from Boston and Ali and I think Ali and Lucia were both like, we feel really woozy. And I'm like, and once they opened the door and we actually got oxygen, we all felt invigorated. And apparently it was because we were, you know, we had a, <laughs> we were getting suffocated by the exhaust and we didn't know it. Um, we always had, the, you always had the seat in the van that was the most dangerous that someone would call the Cliff Burton seat. Like we'd have to be sitting on like a milk crate or some shit like that, like in the middle of. <laughs> yeah, R- riding Burton. Yep, riding Burton. He's like, I'm just gonna get crushed. Like, if we go down, I'm in the worst position. Yeah, right you, now. yeah, yeah. somebody will be jettisoned immediately uh, out of the vehicle. <laughs> and then we also used to rent vans from this shitty place in Yonkers called Norman's Used Auto Rentals, where I believe the oh slogan God. was, "Where less is more." And it was probably the only. <laughs> it was Norman's use auto for less is more, and I. I, I really wish I had a Norman's T-shirt. Oh, so do I, because it was it was like the quintessential like slippery used car dealership in South Yonkers, and but hey, as under twenty five year olds, you know it was probably one of the few places that we could rent. But I distinctly remember one of the road trips where it wasn't. It was it was um, outburst and uppercut. It wasn't killing time, and I remember we were playing DC, maybe the Safari Club. I don't really remember. Maybe it was the Worcester yeah, Safari Club. Paul, um, and you know, Leadfoot Murphy, fucking pulls <laughs> the thing all the way down ninety five to DC, and then you know we start coming home and the tranny starts slipping, and at that point. We were like, I think we just went to a Pizza Hut or something terrible, and yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, I, I think literally everyone lost their minds um, at, at yeah. that point. At some point that night, um, you know, we had. I think that was a that was a pretty crazy that was a pretty crazy trip. So um, I thought we were going to take the auto train, but that only went up to DC, so that wasn't helpful. Um, we probably should have burned the thing and just left it there, but then the equipment would have been staying there too. Um, yeah. But, you know, I just remember the solution to the problem 
was was very interesting. Does somebody uh, want to take the rest of the story on? And then we the solution was, and we decided we weren't going to just bail and like call up and say the van got stolen, and we couldn't figure that out. Uh, we decided to get it towed with us in it to go drop it off back at the rental spot, and ended up it was also cold. Yep, it was freezing. And it was, yeah, definitely remember like having like, as it's like, a, for, it took forever. It was a really, in classic uppercut style, it was a really good show. We turned a win into an L somehow because the, the show was really good. But I think, you know, ending up having to get home that way kind of put a damper on how, you know, the night that we did have. That was just a, it was a crazy. And then like, so you, I think what we did is we took shifts riding back in the cab up front with the weird like driver, like the truck driver. And then everyone else sat in the back, like at a 40, at a 45 degree angle from, yeah, like, dude, all the way home. We, we basically sat in an ice box for like nine hours and the, the, the tow truck driver, Lars kicked you out of the front cause you kept falling asleep. Oh, cause I fell asleep. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was all cozy. Like you went from like being so freezing to like it was like toasty and warm in there. I just passed the fuck out. I was like, oh my God, this is so nice. I was like, these two truck drivers were also hillbilly as fuck. Like they probably shared, they probably shared one tooth. Like they would just stand it back yeah. and forth. Like that's the, the other thing I remember learning about is like once you get into suburban Virginia, it is kind of the South still. Like DC is its own thing and then everything outside of it. You're still in the South. It was, it was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was Jessup, Virginia. I'll, I'll never forget it. And we, and we've driven by it on tour in, in Kings destroy, you know, literally probably 50 times, um, since then. And I still see it every time we're on the road and I'm just like, uh, it just, it gives me PTSD to be honest with you. <laughs> well, well. Everybody lost their mind during that during that thing. I just remember me and Steve looking at each other and just cackling because of the horror, just laughing, just being like, yeah. this is so horrible. Like, just laughing because, as I recall, the van, the prison van, by the way, that's what we were traveling in. Yeah, it was a prison van. It wasn't it was insulated. Like County it was Park. just yeah. – and, and the back door had been, like, jimmied open, so – like there was like ten degree air just blasting in all over us for the entire trip back. Sefcheck, you were a vegetarian at the time, and I believe you housed an entire pepperoni leftover pepperoni pizza. Yeah, that 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 trip destroyed my vegetarianism. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I realized that when you were cold and dying, that pepperoni was um, actually helpful. <laughs> cold and dying. Yeah. No, but there's. There's so many classic bad hardcore band road trips that, you know, and that one, whenever I talk to people have had like crazy things happen, I think that one, you know, it doesn't take the cake, but it definitely sits up there with like, yeah, I once sat in the back of yeah. my van getting towed back to DC and like from DC and it was like 15 degrees out and they're just like, oh. Yeah. It took a really <laughs> long time because we had to take side roads. We yeah. also had yeah. to stay, stay down. Right. We also had if cops yeah. saw us, they would have pulled us over and then we would have been fucked on the side of the road. And yeah. then Coon Clux would have gotten a huge ticket, the two drivers, which is why we had named them after we returned. Um, um, I'll never but, forget coming down Fordham Road at daybreak at dawn because we literally were traveled all night in that thing. And um, we had to stop 
Bill stopped at the cash machine to drain the blackout bank bank balance so we could pay these guys, and 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 we got back and it was six hundred bucks and um, we gave the guy six hundred bucks and he was absolutely furious with us because when we were negotiated when we first started he was like there's going to be a tip on the end here and we just didn't we had no money we, mm-hmm. we barely had the six hundred dollars and um, just the, he was just infuriated with us. Uh, after the all nighter, and I just remember it was right in front of the hotel, and I went inside and I called Norman's and left a message just saying the van broke down because um, you were, you were not allowed to take Norman's vans out of state. So of course that's right. We took the vans out of state every single weekend, right? That's why we couldn't leave it down there because if you know I couldn't just say oh it broke down in Washington D.C. because they'd be like, <laughs> yeah, you just bought it. Yeah, then it's less is more. Then you own it. Like you're. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was that was the pinnacle. I think that was definitely the the pinnacle of shitty times on the road with you guys. But it does create a rather amusing anecdote, and it does definitely does take well, maybe not the gold. It definitely is a, a medalist in the uh, in the pantheon of shitty road stories. It definitely is. But there there are definitely more. Like we stayed in some pretty hovelish conditions, and you know. I remember another road trip to Boston, potentially without killing time again. It seemed like not going with killing time really always was like the catalyst for something shitty happening. Um, We went up to Boston and then we were offered to stay at this skinhead girl's house. And then, and then we were shown to this like linoleum floored bedroom with one giant, like normal mattress on it. Like, all right, here's where you can sleep. You know, with her, her, it was like a Marge Simpson style voice that she had. And, you know, the evening just got, just got better from there. Yeah, we had, we had, Boston always had great parties after the shows. Remember, we used to like, they would have a great party at somebody's house. And then we would have to find someplace to crash. And I just remember we met these girls at the party and they all had names, but not like normal names. Like one was called the Beaver. One was called Adidas, I remember, and they. This is this is how old we are, but they were all like phone sex workers. That's how they. Made, that's how they made their money. That's right. And they're like, you can come back and stay with us, and we're like, okay, and we did. And it was just one. It was one bedroom that two girls were were crashing in, and we had to sleep on the floor, and it was filthy, just a filthy place, right? Oh, it was horrible. I remember like being fest. I think we were festooned in cockroaches like for a while. And we were all just sitting there like, oh, and then we were talking. And then at some point during the evening, the door flew open, like with this silhouette of this furious skinhead girl um, who proceeded to tell us that she was going to kill all of us in our sleep. <laughs> and then if you if you recall i won't say this but you guys may want to chime in on um i had a rather uh uncivil reaction to that <laughs> particular uh response I, I think it was classic bill wilson reaction wasn't it it was like uh why don't you just fucking put me out of my misery right now go ahead kill me go get a knife <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you made yourself a sacrificial lamb <laughs> Yeah, I still, I still to this day, when I reflect upon some of those things, I really wonder what the fuck I was so mad at, at 20 something years of age. I just cannot, literally for the life of me, I can't recall what my problems were, but, you know, 
it definitely, I was, I, I definitely had a little air of negativity around me. Oh yeah, you did, oh, Bill. Yeah, you did. I think it was all that sheer terror and carnivore you were listening to. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I just, uh, <laughs> I can't really put my finger on it now. And I've had, I've had a couple of years of therapy, and I still don't really understand where that. <laughs> It's funny that um, the guy who wasn't in the band was the saltiest guy that we knew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and you know what? That feels actually pretty good coming from Mr. Hate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a ringing endorsement. I, I just want to know where – did I sleep at that house? Because I have no recollection. I think I would have remembered something that horrific. You, you probably, probably – It was very memorable. Like I know it was Murph. I know it was Sefchak. I know it was me. Yeah, I was definitely in there. God, I think were, were you there, Pat? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Lars. I think you were in school at that time. Yeah, I think you might have been in school. But oh, I, so you might have flown the cool that one. No, that, that's, that's a good miss, dude. That I, was, had a cal- I had a calculus test or something like that. Yeah. But. <laughs> I think that was the weekend that we we did a, a mini tour with uh, Di because we played. Um, we were on the road to Albany. We played Boston, then we, we played Albany, some VFW hall in Albany at, at the day after. Right. Yeah, I definitely missed that. Yeah, I, I would have remembered playing with DI. So did was Fink the only guitar player at that point? No. I, yeah. yeah. At that show, yeah, yeah. you just had a, a, a Fink was the, the stand-in? I think it was Seawolf by then. No? Oh, no, no, I don't think so. It was wild that, Eric, when you were in school, it was just Eric and Eric and I and Rob and you, Steve. Oh yeah, there were some special shows with you two, you two guys. Wow. Oof. Yeah, that's that, that's just pretty much drums and vocals for most of the shit for yeah. a good chunk of the show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pat, pretty much. Pat, Pat and Eric would just when the bass player, when the bass player and the guitar player are both in the like stage diving like all the yep. time, like it sort of leads to like not tight. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> is Pat, Pat being you know. He's not as slender as he used to be, but Pat used to be very easy to throw around. So it was great. Yes. Like you could pick up Pat and like throw him into the crowd and he'd be like sitting there with this big shit eating grin on getting a throw like 10 feet into the crowd playing bass and like stepping on people's heads. Like, so what, what, what Pat may have made up for in not being Matt Freeman from Rancid on the bass playing side, he definitely did freaking make up for in showman, pure showmanship. Oh, it was so much fun. Yeah. It was so much fun. I'll never forget, like, Todd, like, he would, like, gently put his bass down, like, and then just, like, roll up his sleeves and, and ha- yeah, like you said, have that big shit-eating grin and, like, j- jump into the audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like. yeah, when you guys did Dirty Deeds in Boston, which all you guys were doing, I just remember, number one, it didn't really sound like Dirty Deeds, but it sounded close enough. But, like, didn't somebody else pick up the bass who didn't really know the song literally at all? I, I routinely gave the bass to somebody, whoever was standing next yeah, to me. Yeah, it was, I mean, it it was uh, Zach yeah. from, from Maelstrom. <laughs> it's fucking great. It's literally yeah. just like, sure, you kind of know it, maybe not, just play it. Who knows? Uh, Who knows? That, guy could, that guy could play. Yeah, he, did. He, he could definitely play. Oh, I, I don't recall <laughs> – I don't really recall that song having uh, – I don't really recall the uh, the audio fidelity or the uh, adherence to the arrangement uh, in, in that particular rendition of Dirty D. No. Hey, there, there's a there's a there's a great uh, there's a cool YouTube bit of that on uh, uh, it, up in I think the show you're talking about. And um, oh yeah, it, it, yeah, it yeah, actually yeah. sounds pretty good. Yeah. Does it really? I gotta go back and watch. I really. Yeah, do. man. It, it, it's it's complete chaos. I, I'm amazed that we were able to get through the song. 
because it was uh, it was it was pretty chaotic. It was a mess, but Boston was always fun. I think Boston liked you better than New York. I mean, the slop shot guys kind of adopted you a little bit. They were always at your shows. They were always talking like between Jack and Mark and Jamie and everybody. Like they were up front, fucking dancing for you guys all the time. Like it was uh, it was it was actually pretty cool. Like they always. They always were good supporters, and and um and Pat Moran, who was their roadie mm-hmm. uh, as well, was like you know those guys were great to us. You know, yeah, it was like a second home. Like you know, you know, bullshit rivalries be damned. Slapshot were fucking aces to to you guys and to Killing Time, frankly. Yeah, man, Wrecking Crew too, man. Keith Bennett yeah. and um John Darga and all those dudes, man. They they oh, were yeah. always Wrecking Crew guys were all fucking awesome. Like yeah, Boston was great. You know, eye, eye for an eye, guys. I think it might have been it might have been because since we weren't sort of we I don't think any of us personally were in that first wave of hardcore that when we went to Boston it was kind of like they just kind of accepted us for who we were like we we didn't have like a reputation or anything yet and but they were just cool you know um not not that New York wasn't but it was like I don't know well, there's no pre-existing beef from like yeah you know, yeah, like, yeah that's yeah exactly that's what I mean yeah kind of like a new new era yeah, it's a whole different generation of kids. Like I remember going up to with Killing Time played in with Sick of It All in Boston. It was one of the first times that Sick of It All had played in Boston. And everyone was like slightly worried that as yeah, being a New York band there. And then it was just like, well, it's kind of like nothing happened and everyone was super cool because it was a completely different generation of kids that didn't like, you know, I mean the Slapshot guys and they were from then, but they didn't care. They're like, you guys were like in, you know, high school when that happened or even going to shows when that happened. So right. they were always super, super nice. Yeah, yeah. And, like, we, we had some good times, like, even though, like, I also remember, you know, playing at the Blue Pelican with SNFU, you know, going with you guys to, to, to Blue Pelican. And Slapshot. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that was last Slapshot and SNFU. And, um, you know, but those were the kind of things that I'll remember because that was a hot summer day. And before the show, I think, like, half of us went swimming. Like, yeah, yeah. like me, That's Carl, a- Al, Lars, like we all were like went swimming off of Newport and like we're jumping off this friggin' ridiculously high bridge into the into the water and, and sw- swimming over. Like those are the kind of things that you kind of remember is like the Tom Sawyer kind of moments of like doing this crazy yeah. like shit. Like th- that that's part of the joy of being on the road that, you know, I don't know if people still get at this point, but it was sure was fun. That's also, yeah, they just have like a, a, you know, on hot summer. I remember like uh, on the judge tour that I did, there was like part of the tour once we got past the Mississippi that we were like, we're going swim, we're going swimming every day, no matter what. Like we would go like to hotel pools. We went swimming and like, I went swimming in a river. Like you just like, it was like you had no, you just wanted to like, it was totally Tom Sawyer. It's like the same thing. You're like, oh, it's a nice day and we're hot in this van. Let's just go jump off the Newport Bridge. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The low part, by the way, the high part, we would have been smeared. Yeah. yeah. But no, that would have been like a part. different story. That That's a the low part. Yeah. Oh, that bridge yeah. is not there anymore. Yeah. They, they changed it up. They swapped it out. Oh, really? Oh, I guess it's like the uh, yeah, tap and it's, 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 it's the same thing. They did the same thing. They built the bridge next to it, and yeah, it's not there anymore. But yeah, yeah, I always liked Newport. After that, I always thought it was a, like a cool place. Yeah. I've never actually been back since then. But that was, I think, where I first met Brian Simmons as well. Yeah, I, I still am in touch with him all the time. Like I just see, you know, I 
see him all the time and have been stayed in touch with him from that. I think that that we met him because I think they wanted to book raw deal for that. And then they couldn't. And then that was also a Carl thing that he was just like, Oh, you should link up with this guy. And, or, and did, or he saw us play with killing time and was like with, it was raw deal then. And then, you know, it's become a lifelong friend just from, you know, he did, booked us for that show and I've stayed in touch with him ever since. Yeah. I mean, and he's put out some great records and like become a really good, 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 you know, good friend, you know, and, uh, you know, so, you know, a lot of shows, a lot of things can't cover all the shenanigans and road trips here. But, you know, the thing I remember is that, you know, you know, towards the end phase of Uppercut, everybody's kind of adult crash hit a little bit. Like I remember, you know, Steve was starting to work a full time job um, and like he would come home after a night of like playing shows and probably driving half, if not all the way home from a place like Boston we get home at fucking sunup and Steve would literally go hop in the shower, suck down three Cokes and then like throw on his suit and go to work at Merrill Lynch. Like, dude, your energy level was just remarkable then, you know, to, to do that. But that's kind of like, I, I guess that's the point where you decide, you know, you guys really decided that, you know, there were certain things that were unsustainable and the band kind of was just kind of, you know, not something you could do anymore in that same way. So talk about kind of like where you guys were probably circa, you know, 91, you know, in your, in your heads. Like hardcore had sort of become like at least the hardcore that I grew up with and going to like matinees at CBs and things like that became something else. It became like hyper violent to put it mildly. And then also like, then the whole ABC No Rio thing happened, which wasn't really my, my cup of tea. I don't think it was anyone. So like all of a sudden you were in this band. You're in a band that, 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 you know, related to a certain scene or a certain environment. And that, that environment isn't there anymore. Uh, and that sort of made it adds to like what you're, you know, going through personally where you're like, I'm, you know, I want to do something different, you know, or whatever you have like, you know, a real job or whatever. At that point I was like in college, I was younger than everybody else, but like things are changing. So you just don't, you, you, those two things working together really made it, made it, uh, made you not interested in doing it anymore. You know, the change in the scene really, I think, I think what, I think, I think one or the other, you could, you could get past if the scene and sort of stayed like, is it sort of interesting and not really as crazy as New York became. Um, we might, you might want to have stuck it out. It would probably change the music would have changed and you could have just dealt with the other, but the two of those things together, I've always thought about is like, that's when I stopped playing in hardcore bands. Cause it was just like, it, it was something else at that point. I, yeah. And that's when hardcore got a little trite and boring for me because it was the same old thing. And musically, you know, I, I said this the other day on a, on a different episode, but you know, all these satellite scenes in suburbia started, you know, popping up. And so, you know, you had a scene in a couple of scenes, different scenes in New Jersey, right, that didn't rely on New York City anymore. New York wasn't the mecca for freakazoid culture that it used to be, you know, and the music in New York was New York was its own little crazy bubble with, you know, again, you know, that at that point, alternative rock was in full glory. Matador was in full glory with pavement and guided by voices and 
even I did a Guided by Voices record early on in the 90s um, on, on my other label. And, you know, the, there was this musical explosion that, you know, you could one could argue that the kernel comes from punk rock and hardcore, right? But the, it really just kind of branched out to where all these different styles were happening and the social scene down, downtown was just incredible when you look at all the, the bars that were opening, you know, it was a, it was, it was like a debauched circus and I loved it down there, but it definitely was different than hardcore. Um, and it was definitely, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and I was not again, like much like you, Lars, I was definitely not into the ABC No Rio scene only because they kind of, they kind of stood against my friends, you know, they were derided sick of it all. They derided killing time. You know, there was this whole kind of, you know, what I consider to be faux privileged anti-money thing that was going on, you know, like, fuck you, fuck the system, man, you know, and it just seemed to be, you know, a little different than, you know, the spirit of DIY that I had thought, you know, and me personally, I like to see my friends be able to, you know, maybe make a living from their, from the art instead of having to work in a factory all day. Like there's nothing noble in, in, in having to slog your life away. And it seemed like, you know, these guys were kind of, you know, pissing in the face of that and it turned me off. And then, as you said, also the incredible violence that was happening at shows, like, you know, I think Anthony's big joke is, Hey, you know, I went to a, I went to a fist fight and a show broke out. You know, and it was kind of like, you know, that was something like, you know, at that point, you know, my anger had dissipated enough to where that wasn't cool anymore. Like, you know, I wanted to, you know, hang out, watch rock and talk to girls. I had no desire to like be down. And at one point, CBs just like stopped. They were just like, we're not doing this anymore. And that was I don't know when that happened. I'd already not been going, but like it got so bad that they were just like, we can't do this. And you know something's bad when, like, you know, venues are just like, mm, we're, you know, we'll pass. I, I remember, you know? I, mean, I remember being at a sh- uh, matinee once, and there was a fight that started inside, which was not all that uncommon. That spilled outside, and one of the guys pulled out a gun right in front of Seabees. Yeah, and I we were there. all like, oh, yeah, we were all like, right, like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> yeah, this <laughs> it was is crazy. Not, these are not these. This is not something I'm really psyched about right now. Right. That's right, Lars. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's not where I go to shows, right? It's it's definitely not yeah. part of the ethos that I had. Like, you know, I mean, it's just something that, you know, was it, – it's not something that I wanted hardcore to be. And I know that it's not up to my control to figure out how, you know, the nobility of the genre or the purity of the genre. So I kind of just found my own path. and you know, putting out different records by bands like the Goops or even doing God is my co-pilot, you know, starting the engine label where I did other things. You know, I was working for different record companies at the time, like indie record companies. I ran a heavy metal label called Earache for a couple of years. And so like, you know, these are the kinds of things where that was all happening in New York City. So while I think that in my head, I was still DIY and still kind of hardcore in some ways. I wasn't such a fascist about kind of adhering to, you know, one sort of brand for myself. And it was just kind of like, I do what the fuck I want. And, you know, I appreciated that. And you guys were kind of the same way where, you know, 
we didn't have to be purists in that way anymore. And, you know, Steve, you started a couple different bands, you know, Lars, you, you know, you were in a couple of different bands as well, like side projects, like Alone in the Crowd, you know, Rob, you were in a gajillion fucking different bands from, you know, you know, going from all the way from, uh, you know, Electric Frankenstein and Fur all the way through, you know, you and Steve are now in, in, in Kings Destroy, you know, so the music element hasn't changed. You know, but everybody kind of got jobs. Everybody did stuff. And that's where kind of uppercut kind of was a point in time. I think, in, in I, think I think we really hit a, a big crossroads there. And and by the way, shout out to Lars, who as, you know, a teenager handled all of the logistics of the band. Like, you know, I didn't book any shows. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't handle anything. I don't think Rob, maybe Pat, Pat might've uh, done a little bit too, but <laughs> all, Lars booked every single show. And we got to this point in 1990 where we were probably, probably as big as we, I mean, we definitely went out as big as we were, right? We didn't, there was no downtrade, but um, I think that Lars um, was able to get a, a, a full U.S. tour offer and possibly U.S. and Europe. And, you know, that was a, that was just a big crossroads for the band. We were already kind of, a little bit negative on some of the final shows we played, not in terms of audience, but just like, what are we doing? Um, maybe we were a little burned out. And, um, and, you know, I remember going into my boss and saying, you know, I'd like to take a three month leave of absence unpaid. <laughs> and uh, he's like, why? And I said, uh, I'm in this band, you know, cause I had, <laughs> I'd hidden all that from, from my work. And, and the guy was just like, um, you know, you, this is your, this is your crossroads. He's like, you're either working here or you're quitting. So, and you know, at that time there was, I couldn't even, my rent was $200 in the Bronx. I could not even imagine making $200 a month in hardcore and uppercut to, to pay my rent. And I certainly wasn't moving back in with my folks. So it was a pretty easy decision for me, I guess. Yeah, yeah, because New York City rents, even though they might have been not very expensive at the time, were still like people still had to pay to live if you weren't like able to crash at your parents. Like, and you know, your family was up in fucking Rochester, and it's not like they were going to welcome you back to so you could play in a hardcore band. So, you know, <laughs> it just wasn't, just wasn't yeah. an option. I was I was so impressed with the hotel the hotels uh, ease of ease of uh, um, I don't know. Uh, the rent on that place being as being what it was. I mean, I always tell people, you know, cause even then, I mean, I remember I had a place in Soho, like I had a place. I lived on McDougal street and Prince street, which Carl moved into after he lived in the hotel, in the hotel. And that was affordable. And I always remember thinking, well, like, you know, my bedroom there was four seventy five a month. And I remember like thinking about well, the Bronx is like, even like so low, like so crazy. I, I, know, I always remember thinking like how, that the living like that is just not available now. And especially live maybe in that neighborhood, but even now I think that neighborhood has changed so much that that's incredibly expensive, like expensive. Well, relative that's the culture that. of creativity in New York is, is gone <clears throat> in a lot of different places because there's nowhere for artists or ne'er-do-wells to like live. Like where's somebody going to live? You're going to like, you know, live, you know, I guess maybe the ass end of Bushwick, but even that's fucking expensive. Hey guys, just, I had this thought since we last talked and you talk about, you know, the scene in New York city. I'm sure you guys remember when, when we and pretty much every other band in New York city used to practice at giant on West 14th street. 
And um, remember, guys, like, you know, we'd go in and practice in those god-awful shitty rooms. You'd, you know, we'd book two hours, and then when you're done, you'd go next door and you'd listen to the guys from Underdog for, like, you know, 20 minutes or, 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 you know, whatever other band. But you ran into, you know, other bands in there constantly. I mean, it was such, you know, it was just, it was just a really, a really magical time, man. It really, really was. Didn't Giant have a beer machine? I remember they had a soda machine that Probably. had beers in it. I remember, I don't remember, that's, I remember that being a teenager, thinking that was very cool. <laughs> yeah, that, being 16, <laughs> it's like, oh, I can yeah, just put a dollar in this and get a beer. That probably exists awesome. nowhere right now. <laughs> Like that is just like things that could. It's like there's a long list of things that could happen in the 80s and early 90s that literally you would have like black helicopters and people, you know, in in uh, in, yeah. in, in uh, Kevlar, friggin', you know, raiding your place if you ever thought about doing it. So you know, everybody kind of went their own separate ways, stayed in music, you know, and some of you guys got you know different jobs, and you know, I mentioned this. You know, previously as we were talking another time, but you know, Pat, you know, you got a job um, that's pretty much the most straight edge job that anybody could possibly have. So, you know, what did you do, and what are you doing, and what are you doing now? Um, um, yeah, it was kind of interesting. Um, I actually worked for the FBI for a few years in uh, uh, in New York City in the in the Foreign Counterintelligence Division and. And now I've uh, I work for the DEA in Philadelphia, and I've been there now for almost 23 years. Um, so it's you know I ended up uh, uh, you know again getting a career in federal law enforcement, which was kind of 180 degrees from from the scene. But it's been uh, it's been a blast, man. It's been an absolute blast. Well, you know, I just still picture your shit eating grin as you're freaking have this adrenaline rush of jumping on the crowd. And I can imagine that, you know, some of the things you do provide a similar rush. I mean, you're a bike messenger too. So I know yeah. that you have a, you have, you know, you may not have any drugs in your system, but you like the adrenaline a little bit, I think. Oh, no, no question. No question. And in some ways, you know, we, we have just as much fun um, in, in our group or, or a squad room as we did with the band, except when we get pulled over by the cops now, it's not nearly as scary. And so Steve kind of like, what did you, what did, what did you do for a job after, after, you know, after, after uppercut and kind of prior to Kings destroy and, and kind of, you know, how, how did that, how did hardcore impact kind of the way that you conducted business? You know, I, I, so I had a job in operations, you know, the, the, the most basic low, lowest tier job you could get at Merrill Lynch. And I think I was making $18,500 a year, um, which is why I had to live in the Bronx. And, uh, you know, like I just kind of got lucky. I was in the right place, right time and, um, ended up having a pretty long career as, as a, uh, as a bond trader, um, ended up moving overseas for a few years. Um, and you know, for, but for me, it was, there wasn't really a, a conflict to me. It was just like, you know, like, like anybody else really, you know, I was out of college. I, my family was not close by and I just need, I had to pay my bills and, and everything that came after that was gravy. You know what I mean? So I just kind of fell in, I fell into it. I mean, I think I always kind of had that mentality that I would like to do that, but I really just fell into it and, and, uh, worked out i guess cool 
And Lars, you bounced around a little bit, but now you, uh, you know, you found your 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 way back to the uh, entertainment biz, right? Yeah, I was. I'm just. I bounced around once again, but I was working. I've worked as an entertainment lawyer for over a decade now, and uh, I just left the last gig I had, and I'm sort of figuring out what I'm going to do next. So, I think, as I said in the beginning, hardcore gave me a sense of entrepreneurship. Right. It gave me the fact that you can do anything if you do it. Like I never thought I could start a record company and I did. And, you know, it, it amazingly has given me jobs, you know, in many different ways. And I still do the label after this many years. And I'm astonished, you know, that people still want to buy the reissues of stuff that I did 30 years ago. So it's a gratifying experience for me. You know, you guys chime in to kind of what you know, what you brought forward from those days. I think when I think about that stuff, it's two things about having, because I was, you know, fairly young. We're talking about the ages of 16 to 18 for me, or a little bit later, 16 to 19. And uh, having that, having, first of all, having something as a teenager that's completely yours, that there's basically no adult supervision um, is pretty remarkable. Now having teenagers, that are, you know, my sons are teenagers and like, they're pretty independent, but they still never had anything like being in, you know, the Tom Sawyer aspects of being in a hardcore band where you get to go to Boston for the week and then you go back to regular high school, you know, like that just, most kids just don't experience. It. I mean, they could, maybe you'd say you're on a traveling baseball team or the basketball team or something, but that's all like adult supervised and, you know, sanctioned and pretty normal. And I got to experience something that is completely um, by kids and done for kids and, you know, basically totally, for, you know, just for the love of it. And there's very few things I've ever experienced since then. And that's what I take from that is that that's, you know, that that's a pretty unique experience for any teenager to have. Um, You know, I think that that uh, the whole idea of, of a it's very contrarian. Hardcore is very, if you think about it in the, in the larger context of, of music at that time, I mean, it was so far out, out there, you know, now, now it's, it seems much more mainstream, but at that time it was so far out there and just that sort of contrarian nature of it. Um, I, I feel like I've applied that, um, in a lot of different ways, um, to various aspects of my, of my life. And, um, you know, obviously the memories are, are fantastic and the fact that we're still making music all these years later is, is incredible. But also just the fact that like, I can see Pat Trainer after not seeing him for 25 years and you know, there's just all this, still this love there and Lars and Rob, all these guys like you, Bill, Carl, the guys from Breakdown and, and Killing Time. It, that is such a unique set uh, set of relationships, and probably in 1990 I took it for granted. But you know, in 2021, you just realize how special it is to have friends for that length of time. You know. Sound design and mixing for Mad at the World is by Brad Worrell at Soundweb. Illustrations for each episode are by Christian Minnick. You can follow his art at Cortoons on Instagram. And if you like what we're doing, 
Follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter at BlackoutNYHC, and on Facebook and YouTube at Blackout Records. Got a comment or a suggestion for us? Hit us at matw at blackoutrecords.com. See you next time.